Amen is right. Um, thank you, Pastor Alfredo, for that uh, special song. Uh, it's so true. Um, I'd rather have Jesus. It, it, can you say that this morning? Uh, Jesus is the, the reason we are here. And that is the very truest sense uh, of why we do church, why we have church, why we are here present this morning. Um, and no matter what the world offers, he is, he is better. He is more precious. He is more valuable, um, far surpassing, of far surpassing value than anything this world could ever offer. Um, well, I, I, it's a privilege for me to, to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here and uh, to share God's word with you. Those of you who are present in Sunday school, uh, again, I'm sorry, you're getting me for a second time, so you're stuck with me. Um, don't worry, next Sunday I, it'll be pastor again, most likely. So, um, Return with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15, and we'll be in verse 1, Luke 15, verse 1. And this morning we are going to open God's word and we are going to, uh, we're going to study it. We're going to hear from it. We're going to learn from it. Now, to, to start out, I, I, I'd like to ask you um, how many, and you know, this is a rhetorical question, but how many of you have heard, have asked yourselves even, what God's will is for your life? Uh, what is God's will for my life? That's a question we hear frequently. It's a question we ask ourselves quite often. What is God's will for my life? Now, there are two types of, 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 of God's will, two categories, rather. There's God's decreed will which is uh, more secret. It is his will that he has uh, divinely decreed. Um, it is not readily available for us to know exactly. And then there is God's revealed will, which he has shown us in his word, the Bible. An example of God's revealed will would be the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. These are but a few examples of what God's revealed will is An example of God's decreed will is he has decreed the day when Christ will return again. Although we don't know that day when it will be, yet we know that it will come. It is part of his decreed will. Our text today deals with God's revealed will. And Jesus Christ is the teacher, has something to say uh, with that respect. I'm going to read the verses again, even though we already read them. I'm going to read them, 1 through 7, and then we will pray. Follow along with me where you're seated. The Word of God says in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, 
that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than over ninety and nine just persons with just persons which need no repentance. Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, I need you this morning to help me as I preach your word. I can't do it alone, and I wouldn't want to. Please help me. May your spirit uh, speak through me. Please use this text, Lord, to speak to us. Uh, Open our hearts and our minds to your truth, and may you bless us greatly, Lord. May this not just be a formality. May this not just be another thing we do. But may your word confront us. Anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, may they see your truth and be saved. May you lead the sinner to repentance. And those of us, Lord, who are uh, joyfully your, your children, I pray that you would still confront us. Bless us and encourage us with your word. May we not remain neutral to your truth, but may we respond to it in obedience and faith. Once again, help us to see your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. What we are going to see in our text is a very important point regarding God's will. There's a lot of talk about it. What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do for a living? What does he want me, uh, where does he want me to go to school? Where does he, what does he want me to do with regards to this relationship that I have in my life? Uh, what should I do when my friend comes to me and asks me for advice? Or when my wife or my husband or my child comes to me? What do I do? What is God's will for my life? And there's, there's been a great, in, uh, a great deal of activity to, to, to seek out God's will. Um, I, I remember hearing of uh, the, some people were talking and they said, well, sometimes I just open the Bible and just randomly point to a verse and um, I trust that that is the verse that I need to hear and whatever that verse says, well, I'm supposed to kind of adapt my, my, my life uh, to, to do exactly what that verse says. And although we are to obey the Bible, we need to study it systematically. We need to dwell on God's truth. We need to renew our mind in the scriptures as we learned this morning in Sunday school to be able to discern, correctly discern God's will. But one thing that we must not miss is God's will for everyone. For everyone. And what is it? Well, we're going to see in our text, Jesus uses three parables to illustrate, or rather to emphasize, this one main point. Look at verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. What's the context of our text? Well, we have Jesus with sinners. Jesus is, keep, is, is, is with people who were known to be sinners, and he, it says he was with uh, the publicans as well. Who were the publicans? The publicans were tax collectors in Jesus' day. They were uh, those who collected the taxes from the people, and they sadly were known to be very greedy. They were known to take more than what they, uh, what they should in order to keep uh, a certain sum for themselves, and they, 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 t- they took more 
every time more than what they were allowed. And they had a very ill reputation of being extremely greedy, dishonest, and sinners, no doubt. And we have the, the Pharisees. They accuse Jesus. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the Jewish uh, leaders who were marked by hypocrisy. They were marked by uh, self-righteousness. Their reliance, their trust, was in their own religiosity. It was in their own ability to keep, or so they thought, God's law. Their trust was in their own doing. It was in their own supposed devotion to God. And they opposed Jesus. We know that during Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees often accused him of breaking God's law, of not being a true man of God. And the Pharisees, they, they, they came against Jesus at many times, and they do so again with an accusation. They accuse Jesus of keeping company with sinners. They say, look at this man. He claims to be a man of God. He claims to be the son of God. Yet he's eating with sinners. He's eating with them. He's talking with them. How dare he? A true man of God would never do such a thing. And that is the accusation brought against Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, look at verse 3 rather. Jesus responds in verse 3. He says, the, the, the scriptures say that he spake this parable to them. And what is the parable? It is the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus perceives their self-righteousness. He perceives their hypocrisy. We read elsewhere in, in the Bible that Jesus had no need for anyone to come to him and tell him what people were thinking or what people were really saying behind his back. We read that in John chapter 6. I'm sorry, John chapter 5, rather, because it says that Jesus knew what was in them. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their minds. And in the same way, Jesus here in Luke 15 knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what, they, what their opinion is of him. He knows what's in their heart. Why? Because he's not just a man. He is God. And therefore possesses God's attributes of omniscience, meaning he knows all things. He perceives their self-righteousness. And then he proceeds to teach them, using three parables, what truly causes joy in heaven, what truly pleases God, what God truly desires. Jesus gives the parables. The first two, the first one is the one we just saw in our text. The first two emphasize the main point. The third parable explains it. The parable of the lost sheep. Verses 1 through 7. We have the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. In verse 4, What man of you, he says, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Jesus directs a question back at the Pharisees and he questions them. Which one of you, having ninety-nine sheep, if you lose one, doesn't go out to seek after that sheep. And this is interesting because this question begs the question of whether or not the Pharisees actually love sinners enough to care for their souls, enough to tell them the good news of God, 
and lust to share the riches of God with sinful people. Look what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, and when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing joyfully. The Pharisees had no joy for saving sinners. There was no joy when one when a person followed Jesus. In first place, they didn't believe Jesus. They hated him. They opposed him. And in this parable, we know that Jesus is the good shepherd himself. I'm going to read to you John 10:14. Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine." In John 10:16, Jesus says, "And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice." The sheep in this parable are the lost sinners or rather the lost sinner that Jesus seeks to save. How are sheep? How are they characterized? What are they like? I personally have never kept sheep. I've actually never been on a farm with sheep. I've just heard all about them. And I've heard about them from people who do know sheep. And sheep are weak. They aren't the brightest. They wander. They are extremely dependent on the one who keeps them, the one who takes care of them. In this case, the pastor. In this case, the shepherd. The lost sheep needs the shepherd. Without the Savior, the sheep is totally lost. And we see this. There's no, the sheep is not coming back on its own. It doesn't come back to the fold eventually. It must be found. It must be sought. And in the same way, the emphasis of this parable is Jesus seeking the sinner. My dear friend, if you are here today and you are saved... It is not because you first sought him, but because he first sought you. I'm sorry, but it's just, not, it's just not that way. You did not love him first, he loved you first. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And what does it mean? What, is, what does Jesus mean by this in John 10, 15? Well, Jesus gives his life for his sheep because only he can give his life for his sheep. Because only by Jesus giving his life for his sheep can his sheep truly live. Now, to the person who is here for the first time, to the person who is visiting or perhaps has never heard this, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus gives his life for his sheep? Well, Jesus, as we previously stated, it was not just man, he was God. Jesus came to this earth fully God and fully man. Born of a virgin, and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never, ever live. He did what you and I could never do. He succeeded where you and I have failed meaning he kept God's law perfectly. Every second of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of Jesus' life was spent obeying God the Father perfectly and loving God the Father perfectly. Something you and I have never done. We could never do. Jesus succeeded where you and I have failed. He had success where we have had failure and defeat. And at the age of about 33, 
He went to a cross and he died. He gave his life that sinners may live. You've no doubt heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good shepherd laying down his life for those who will put their trust in him, who will trust him for salvation, who will trust in his sacrifice. And you say, well, why did he have to die? My dear friend, don't forget that he had to die because only by him dying could he secure salvation for you. You and I owed a debt to God because of our sin, for all have sinned and come short of his glory. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. There are only two types of people here present this morning. There are those who have placed their faith in Christ and are safe and secure in him and are saved. And there are those here this morning yet to truly believe, yet to truly repent and truly put their trust in him. And if that is you this morning, you are still dead in your sins. You are not saved. And you need the good shepherd. So getting back to our text, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Only he, only Jesus, can provide a sacrifice worthy of God's acceptance. You can't do it. The Pharisees couldn't do it. They tried. They believed in their religious sacrifice. They believed in their religious devotion. They believed that their faithfulness to Jewish tradition was good enough, was enough to receive acceptance in God's sight. But Jesus teaches them what truly causes pleasure in God's presence, what truly causes God to rejoice, what truly causes all heaven to rejoice. And as we said before, the key verse is verse 7. But before we get there, we must emphasize the, 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 the latter half of this parable. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he rejoices. The joy comes from love. Listen to what 1 John 4, 9 and 10 say. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We could do a whole conference on these verses and probably never get through them. There's too much here to unpack. But for the sake of illustration, for the sake of uh, strengthening the point, using scripture with scripture, we see that God demonstrates his love towards the sinner and that he sends Jesus so that Jesus, as we were saying, is, becomes our propitiation, meaning he is the sacrifice that takes away God's anger for sin. It's a big word. We don't use it in our vernacular today. We don't say propitiation. But it means that Jesus was a sacrifice to take away God's wrath for sin. When he hung on that cross, all of God's wrath was poured out on him as if he had been the guilty. He was not guilty, but as if he had been the guilty, he was punished for the sinner. He was punished for you. That's what it means when it says that Jesus is our propitiation. And the emphasis in these verses in 1 John being that he first loved us. You did not love him first, I'm sorry. You didn't. You were dead in your sins. And if you have not believed in Christ, you are still dead in your sins. 
Let's continue. We get to verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety and nine persons, just persons, which need no repentance. The good shepherd calls the sheep to repentance. What is the main point? It is repentance. What is God's will for all people? What is it? What is his desire for the sinner? It is repentance. Repentance. And we will see what this truly means in just, a, in just a moment. God's desire is for the sinner to come to true repentance. He contrasts, the, look what he says in verse 7, when he's talking to the Pharisees. There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. True joy. What God truly desires, what true, the religious duty, so to speak, if we can even say that, that truly pleases God is genuine repentance. It is not self-righteousness. It is not even religious devotion in and of itself. It is repentance. And the latter half of the verse is, is very interesting. Over 90 and 9 just persons which, persons which need no repentance. Now, we, we are not to understand this verse as Jesus referring to these 90 and 9 people truly not needing repentance. Not at all. This is an affront to the Pharisees. This is an attack on their self-righteousness. The Pharisees are the 99 who supposedly don't need repentance. They don't think they need repentance. They don't think that it applies to them. They are self-righteous. They are self-deceived. They are trusting in themselves. We don't need repentance, they would have said. Why would we need to change? We are... God's children. We are Abraham's children. We are the ones that truly obey God. We are the one that God truly is pleased with. This is all, these are all things that the Pharisees believed of themselves. And we know this to be true from the scriptures. We know this to be true from God's word. God calls his sheep to repentance instead of remaining in their self-deception and religious self-righteousness and hypocrisy. The main point is repentance. And this is a contrast. The contrast is repentance and self-righteousness. Let's move on. We didn't read this in our text, but I'm going to read it, and you can follow along with me. Parable number two, verses eight through ten. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. In verse 10, we read a similar passage. It's a rep repetition of verse 7. Likewise I say unto you, Jesus speaking here, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Amen. You say, well, Jesus just said that in verse 7. Why is he repeating himself? The purpose of the second parable is the same as the first. It's the same point emphasized, the importance of repentance. The main point is still the same. Why? It is emphasis with repetition. In the Jewish custom, in the Jewish tradition, to emphasize something was to repeat it. Nowadays, you and I write something in all caps, or we text it in all capital letters, or we underline it. 
right? Or we raise our voice, perhaps, even, to emphasize something. We live in a culture that really despises repetition. We hate it when people have to repeat themselves to us. I, I, I think of, um, you know, whether it's my, my family or my friends, I've, I, I'm hard at hearing. I, have, I don't know why, but I, I struggle to hear people many times when they tell me things um, if they're not speaking in a decently loud tone of voice. And I'll ask people to repeat themselves many times, and I've received quite uh, uh, di- a lot of disgust, actually. Um, many of my friends and family hate it when I ask them to repeat themselves to me because it's as if I wasn't hearing, although I'm just hard at hearing. But repetition is actually good in this sense. We will, read rep- we will see repetition all throughout the Bible. We see it heavily in the Psalms. We see it heavily in Proverbs, all throughout the Old Testament and, in, and even in the New Testament. And Jesus is repeating something Because we are so hard at understanding many times that we don't get it into our heads, the importance of the truth that Jesus is teaching. He is emphasizing with repetition. He repeats himself in verse 10 to emphasize the importance of repentance. Stressing the main point of God's desire to seek and save the sinner, Jesus further stresses repentance and its importance over self-deceived hypocrisy. Listen to what Ezekiel 33.11 says. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? This is from the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, The context is the prophet Ezekiel prophesying or telling the people of Israel what God says. A prophet takes a message from God, received from God, and gives it to the people. Much like a preacher, much like a pastor preaching on Sunday morning. And Ezekiel in this context receives this from God and tells it to the people. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but desires that the wicked turn and live. And listen to the repetition even in verse 11 of Ezekiel 33. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God's desire is for the sinner to repent. What is repentance? I've said the word multiple times, And if I can't define it, well, what good is it to tell you that God desires repentance? A a, a very well-known preacher said that when he was in his seminary, when he was studying in seminary, they would have a preaching class, and his professor would sit in the first row, and after 20, 30 minutes or so in the message, the, 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 the professor would hold up a little sign. And the sign simply said, so what? And it was, an, it was an, an urge to the student preacher to get to the main point, to get to the application. So what? You've explained it. Now what does it mean? How do I put it into practice in my life? And that is what we must see. But the beauty of it is that Jesus provides that explanation for us in this text. What is repentance? Well, Jesus illustrates it using another parable. In the first two parables, Jesus emphasizes repentance. 
There is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. He repeats himself to emphasize the absolute necessity for repentance. And then he explains it. Again, I'm going to read the third parable. Follow me in your Bibles, please. The parable of the prodigal son. This is a very well-known parable. Yet I'm, I'm afraid that many times the main point of this parable is, is, is not considered in the light of the overall text and is missed. Verses 11 through 32. Listen to what Jesus says. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. There were two sons. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Verse 28, And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for, thy, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Jesus now illustrates for us what true repentance is. We have the son who is the sinner who rebels against God and this is the lifestyle of all sinners. 
those who are not in Christ, those whose lives are marked by sin. And you say, well, this parable has to do with restoration between a child of God who wanders away. And yes, that application can be made, but primarily this text is dealing with the importance of repentance. And first and foremost, repentance is important for those who have not yet repented. It has a perfect place in the life of the believer, but it has its starting point at conversion. Listen what Jesus, let's look at how Jesus illustrates this. The son is the sinner who rebels against God. Sinners live for themselves. Before coming to Christ, you lived for yourself. If you have not come to Christ, if you have not placed your faith in him, you currently live for yourself, no matter what you tell yourself. All your efforts, all your life plans, they are for yourself. It is a lifestyle marked by selfishness. The sinner lives for himself. There is no desire for the father himself. Look what the son says um, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, look what the scripture says in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. The younger of the two sons says to his father, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. And he divided his living among them. I'm sorry, he divided unto them his living. So the younger son goes to the father and demands that his father gives him the inheritance. It is utter disrespect to his father. It is treating his father as though his father were already dead. As if he didn't care that his father still lived. He had no desire to remain with his father. He had no desire to be in his father's house, to even spend time with him, but rather preferred what his father would eventually give him materially. And this is a mere expression of what was truly in this younger son's heart. The selfish desire to live, fulfilling his every whim, fulfilling his own passions. And this is what the son did. And this is indeed what sinners do. There's no regard for God. They despise him. They would rather avoid him. They would rather avoid his word. The father in this parable is, is, is God the father who rejoices over the son's repentance and shows grace without measure when the son finally repents. The second son is uh, uh, indicative of the attitude of the Pharisees as we saw in verse 1 and 2 in the beginning of our passage in chapter 15 who are upset at God's grace. And indeed, God's grace is an offense to all of those who are self-righteous. There is nothing like God's grace to anger those who are trusting in their own good doing, their own faithfulness to a church, to a belief system, to a religion. Those who would set themselves before God and declare themselves to be right with God because of their own doing or their own perceived goodness or righteousness are offended at God's grace. Why? Because God's grace, it is a gift. It is not based on merit. We live in a world that bases everything on merit. If you want a promotion, you must work hard. If you want to make the sports team, you must practice. You must be the best three-point shooter. You must, be, you must hit the most home runs. You must be the best soccer player. If you want to get into the good school, you have to have good grades. You have to compete. 
But with God, it's not so. God doesn't want our effort. He doesn't want your effort in order for you to be accepted in his sight. He wants mercy. He wants repentance. Grace is a slap in the face to all those who would skirt around God's grace as it was with the Pharisees. But then again, we still have the same question. What is repentance? Let's continue. True repentance starts with an awakening. Look at verse 17. The younger son had taken his father's inheritance and he goes in a faraway land. He spends all his money. He spends everything his father gave him. And it says he spent it living riotously. What that means is he wasted it. He did everything that he pleased. He spent it with harlots. He was immoral. Who knows the degree to which this young son was immoral and unfaithful. He spent it all. He wasted it. He lived for himself. He sinned greatly, giving in to every vice, to every form of sin. Yet in verse 17, something incredible happens. After he spent it all, he had nothing. And this is indeed the very state in which all sinners without Christ find themselves. They have nothing. There's no substance. There's no purpose to their life. If you don't have Christ, there's no purpose to your life. You don't have anything. There's no reason for living. You've wasted it all. And although you have money, And although you have status, and although you have some level of success in this life now, without Christ, you truly have nothing. And as we saw this morning in Sunday school, one day that'll be manifest, and you will see how spiritually bankrupt you are, and that you have nothing without Jesus Christ. So what do you need to do? What needs to happen in your life if you do not have Christ? The same thing that happened to this younger son in verse 17. Look what it says. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's, I'm sorry, of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. True repentance starts with an awakening. It starts at the new birth, when your understanding is opened to God's truth. When hearing God's word preached and taught, when reading it for yourself, your eyes are opened. When the sinner hears God's word and reads it, and he understands it, when he's born again, he comes to his own senses. That is where repentance begins. When it says he came to himself, that's what it means. It means he came to his own senses. He, was, he awakened to the reality of his predicament. The Greek word for repentance, it is metanoia, which means literally translated to change one's mind. It is realizing spiritual bankruptcy, as the younger son no doubt realizes in verse 17. It is an internal change with an ex- that leads to an external change. When somebody truly changes their mind about something, when you truly change your mind about what is true, you act it out. 
There's an outward change that is produced from that inward change. Repentance is a change in direction. It is not merely confessing your sin, although that is part of it. It is a change in direction. For a long time, I understood it as a child. I'm supposed to confess my sin. That is part. But by and large, repentance is a change in direction. It is positional and not necessarily just the mere confession of sin. Repentance is the changing of one's mind. It is a change of direction. Let me give an illustration. If I got in a car right now and I wanted to go to Chicago, Illinois, but I had no sense of direction, and I get in the car and I get on I-90-94 heading west and I go towards Minneapolis, Minnesota, thinking I'm going to Chicago, and I have no sense of direction. I drive, I drive, I pass the Wisconsin Dells, and I'm still not getting it by now that I'm heading in the wrong direction. I'm not not awakened to the truth that I am headed in the opposite direction of where I want to go. And then I start to see road signs. Eau Claire, 20 miles. Hudson, 50 miles. And I'm still not getting it. And then all of a sudden I get to the Minnesota border and I see the Welcome to Minnesota sign. And all of a sudden I say, I'm not going to Illinois. I'm in Minnesota. I've been going the wrong direction this entire time. And then I realize my error and I believe the sign that says I am indeed in Minnesota, and as a result of that, the external change is that I pull my car to the side or pull off on some exit and turn around and go in the other direction. Another example very similar to that, if you and I are friends and we get in a car here in the church parking lot, let's say we we, we meet up here in the church parking lot and we, we want to go to, you're a Cubs fan, and I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. And we say, I'm gonna, we're, we're going to go to the Cubs game. I say, well, I'm a Minnesota Twins fan, but okay, you're a Cubs fan, it's okay. The Cubs play today, so do the Twins, but let's go to the Cubs game. I'm going to do it for you. You're my friend, I love you, I care about you, I want to do what you want to do, we're going to go to the Cubs game. So we get in the car and we, we, we start heading away from church and we start heading towards the interstate to, assume, to assumably go south towards the Cubs in Chicago. But let's say I take a right turn or a left turn and go north towards Minnesota, towards the Twins. And you're my friend and you're riding with me. I'm driving. And you start to think to yourself, does he not know he's going in the wrong direction? And then you say something and you say, yeah, 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 I know. We'll we'll get there eventually. I want to go to the Cubs game too. But the same situation happens and I continue driving north towards Minnesota. And there just so happens to be a Twins game playing and that I'm a Twins fan. And I'm telling you with my mouth that I like you and that I want to do what you want to do as my friend, yet with my actions, I'm demonstrating something totally opposite. I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm professing one thing with my mouth, but what's truly in my heart is another thing. Now when we get to Eau Claire and I realize my error and I say, you know what? I've been selfish. I'm not doing what I originally said I was going to do. And I'm not showing you that I care about you. I'm not doing what is what you wanted to do. I'm being selfish. Let's turn around and go to the Cubs game. My realization of that, my coming to myself in that moment is turning around and truly making a change. And that is repentance. 
the younger son comes to his senses and he, and he realizes his spiritual bankruptcy that he has nothing without his father. What a fool, he says, I've been. Indeed, all sinners without Christ are foolish. You have nothing without him. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer the world. You have nothing to offer yourself without Christ. You thought you did. You thought true life was in success, was in fame, was in being liked, was in being the best. But those are all empty things that will leave you just like the prodigal. What did Jesus say in Mark 1.15? Jesus, beginning his ministry, says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. You see, there's two things there. He says, repent ye, yes, and then he says, believe. What's, there's, there's two things. I thought it was one. I thought it was just belief that was necessary for salvation. Yes. But what you need to understand, my friend, is that faith and repentance are the same. They are two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. True faith yields true repentance. There is not one without the other. We have sadly seen this propagated in, in, much, in many of our churches today. Throughout the nation, there has been, I, I dare to say, there has been a cheap grace preached. There has been an easy believism, not counting the cost. We are such fans of saying it costs you nothing when we emphasize the free gift of salvation. And indeed it is a free gift, but we fail to tell people that it involves repentance that it involves a change of direction, that if you really believe, you will change your direction, that the fact that you believe will be manifested in the fact that you are now living a different way. Now, this does not mean that we expect perfection. At someone's conversion, we would be unjust if we were to expect a perfect repentance. But the difference, the key is that there is a change in direction but we've so commonly taught in, 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 in many parts of America that if somebody simply nods their head and says, I, I can give a mental assent to that. I can, I, can, I can get on board with Jesus as long as he is who I want him to be, as long as he gives me what I want him to give me. And many people have been deceived that way. Not being told that repentance is a part of it. That without repentance, there is no true faith. It is a simple faith, yes, but it involves repentance. Now, as we finish, what is the application? What is the application? So what? How must we live now? Like I said before, there are two people here present this morning. Although I am sure I am in the presence of many who have put their trust in Christ, and I, I look at many of you and know, of, know you to be brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, and I praise God for that. But I also know that there are people here who have never placed their trust in Christ, who have not truly repented. I know you're here. I might not know you, but I know you're here. So, given that there are two people, two types of people here present this morning, there are two parts of this application. What's the first one? Well, the first point is for the sinner. 
for the one who has not repented and believed, for the one who has perhaps been indifferent all your life. Maybe you've come to church a a, a hundred times, a thousand times even, and you've just never really bought into it. It's all been a game. It's all been an act. Or maybe you're self-deceived. You've come to church and you think because maybe you were baptized or maybe you were part of a church previously or you partook in some religious ritual or somebody signed your Bible or you walked an aisle that you are in the family of God. No, if there is no faith and no repentance, you are not. I'm sorry, that is the requirement. It's direct, it's harsh, but it's true. And I would rather tell you the truth than tell you a lie with flowery language. So the first point of application is for the person who has not trusted Christ. What must you do? Repent ye. Repent. Have you repented? Have you changed your direction? Have you changed your mind about Jesus Christ? After reading his word, after hearing his word preached, the spotless lamb who gave his life so that if you will trust him, you will have eternal life. He paid the sin debt. Looking at him as your only hope, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There is no other way. As we saw again in Sunday school this morning, there are, there's only one way that leads to life, and it is Jesus Christ. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that enter therein. There is only two ways. There's one way that leads to life and one way that leads to death. The way that leads to life is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Have you repented of your sin? If you have not, you must. You will not get to heaven. You will not be accepted in God's sight. Like the Pharisees, you will fall short if you do not repent and believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior and that only He is the all-sufficient Savior because He lived the perfect life you could never live and He died the death that you could never die. He sacrificed to God what you could never sacrificially give to God to please God. Now the second part, as we close, to the believer. You who have repented and believed the gospel, and you're here. I praise God for that. It's encouraging to see you. What's the application for you? How must you live? Well, number one, are you continuing to repent and believe? The Bible teaches very clearly that the believer is to continue on in repentance and belief. The evidence that you are saved, although you are only saved at one point in time, yes, that is true, but the evidence, the great assurance is that you continue in belief. You don't stop believing. You don't renounce your faith. You don't stop having an attitude of repentance that every time you sin, every time the Spirit of God convicts you of sin, You repent, you confess it, and you get up again and you move forward. How are you in your spiritual walk? Are there sins in your life that God has convicted you of and have you repented of them? Or are you trying to get away with things? 
Number two, for the believer, when we witness, we are all called to witness. When we witness, this is what we are to guide people to. It can be confusing. We have tracks and they are a great help. We need, I think we can use very good tracks in witnessing. But sometimes we get confused and we think, well, what am I trying to lead the person to? I know I'm leading them to Christ and I must lead them to Christ, but what is it that I need? What am I trying to get to happen? Not in my own doing, but by God's power. What am I praying for? What am I praying that happens with this person I'm witnessing to? That they just maybe nod their head at a few simple truths that I mentioned? That they agree with me maybe on the matter of abortion? That they're a conservative? No. What are you trying to, when you witness to someone, what is the goal? It's to lead them to repentance. That is the goal. It's repentance. That is the point of the gospel. Of the, that is the gospel call. Many people are confused in our day-to-day. It is, it is, the gospel in many parts is believed to just be a gospel of kindness. And although we must be kind and we must love people, those things are so important, yes. But that is not the gospel call, to just be kind. There's also a gospel of social do-gooding that is prevalent all throughout America and in other countries today. That is not the gospel. We ought to feed the poor. We ought to be loving. We ought to reach out to those in need and tangibly help them. Yes! But that's not the end goal. It is to lead them to repentance. And that is why Jesus, in verse 1 of our text, was with sinners. Not that he was keeping company with them to live like them. Many people you misinterpret that verse, they take it out of context and they, and they use it to justify a, a licentious lifestyle saying, well, I can do whatever I want because I'm, I, 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 I'm, Jesus ate with sinners, therefore I can drink in excess and I can smoke and I can do whatever I want to do. Because Jesus did it, he was with sinners. That is a horrible, horrible desecration to that verse. That is not why Jesus was with the sinners. It was to guide them to repentance. It was to lead them through the narrow gate and then have them follow him in the narrow way. My dear friend, have you repented this morning? We are done, but just re- think of this real quick. I'm going to read something to you. The book of Jonah is an incredible book. And I want you to see the parallel that this message of repentance is not just something new. It's not something that was preached only by Jesus. This was the message of the Old Testament prophets. This was the message of the gospel all throughout church history. Let's go to the book of Jonah. And I apologize, my Bible is somewhat new and the pages are thin and they're sticking together. And I know we are getting to the end. Listen to Jonah, the last chapter of the book of Jonah. Jonah, chapter 4. Many of us know the story. The message God sent to Nineveh using Jonah was of one of repentance. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the, an enemy of Israel, a wicked people of which Jonah had no desire to go and share the good news of God's message to them. Jonah did not want the Ninevites 
to repent and believe. He wanted to see God's justice, God's judgment rather, brought upon them. And we get to the last verse, I'm sorry, the last chapter, chapter 4 of Jonah. And we know that Jonah sits after preaching and after seeing a revival break out in the city of Nineveh, the people do repent and they do believe the gospel. And Jonah sees this and goes out of the city and is disgusted. He hates it. He's angry. And God proves a very important point and is the same point that we are trying to make today. He causes a, 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 a branch, a tree, a plant to rise up and give Jonah shade while he waits. Jonah's waiting to see God rain down from heaven hellfire against this city. Not a very kind attitude, is it? And as he waits, this plant rises up and gives Jonah shade. But then the plant dies. It dies. And Jonah gets even more upset. And he is angry that the plant died. He is angry, one, because God was not judging the city as he thought God should judge them. They had indeed repented of their sin. And they did indeed believe. But Jonah says, they are so wicked. I hate God's grace. And then number two, he was mad that God made the plant that had grown over him for shade to die. And look what God tells Jonah in verse 9 of chapter 4. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? Meaning the plant. And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Jonah says, I am so angry I could die. And then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Christian, brother and sister in Christ, how are we going to make a difference? How are we going to bring the message of the gospel to the people of Madison? It will be through sharing the gospel, knowing full well that the goal is repentance. The goal is not that they just change their outer shell, that they just dress a certain way or agree with a certain set of moral principles, but that they truly repent and believe the gospel. And who are we to get angry at them and wish their death if they disagree with us because of abortion or if they disagree with us because of same-sex marriage? Those things are against God's will. Yes, they are horrible. We do not support those things here because the Bible doesn't support them. God hates them. But we still have a message to bring to these very people that oppose us. How can we be like Jonah? How can we be like the Pharisees? No. Must pet, they must repent and believe. And you, Christian, must demonstrate an attitude of constant belief and repentance for the hope that they will repent and believe by seeing your testimony and having an opportunity to share the gospel with them. This is the gospel call. Repent and believe. Uh, we are going to end the sermon now. Uh, bow your heads, please. Let us bow in prayer. And we will have um, an invitation.
I want to be very clear. The, the invitation, it is the, the purpose of an invitation is to, to reflect. It is to reflect on the message itself, not what I've said. Please, don't, don't, don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to God's word. I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just a man. I'm not like, I'm, I'm just like many of you. So the message is God's message. And if you have business to do with God, you can do it right there in your seat. You can come forward if you so wish. It is open. 